Uh, if you're a visitor here this morning, we are coming into week two of a four-week series through the New Testament book of Second Timothy. And as we were explaining last week, Second Timothy is really Paul's final letter. Uh, he wrote a number of letters which are recorded for us in our Bibles, and Second Timothy is his last one. And he is on the equivalent of death row. He's in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Uh, the Mamertine prison is, they lowered them down through a hole in the ground. Unlike the book of Ephesians, which he wrote while under house arrest, that's a little bit of a, if you can say, posh prison experience. <laughs> he would have been able to receive visitors and that kind of thing. It was a it was a much more free sort of imprisonment that he wrote Ephesians under. Not pleasant, I'm sure, but here he has the awareness. And as you read the book of 2 Timothy, he'll make statements that clearly reveal his state of mind, that he believes his own death is imminent. Uh, he doesn't know how many days, perhaps, but he does not believe he has years left to live. He's going to be dying soon. And so he sits down and he writes a letter to Timothy, this young man who he has sort of mentored and trained up in the ministry. And there's a real sense as you read 2 Timothy that he's passing the baton to a new generation of leadership. And 2 Timothy has this great focus to it. Uh, there's not, not a lot of spare language. It's a brief letter, and he's, it's got, he's got crystal clarity as he writes, and he really focuses with this, again, the kind of laser-like precision on the gospel. And so, the way we're breaking out our study of 2 Timothy, in the first chapter, he really exhorts Timothy to guard the gospel. Be careful and precise about what you introduce people to as far as thinking about the foundations of their hope. And that was what we talked about last week, very important message in that day and as well as on, in our own, that we guard the gospel, both in our own thinking and in the way that we present the gospel as we do church life and evangelism and missions trips to Mexico and all of it, we should be guarding the gospel. And then Paul transitions, well, really, it's also there in chapter 1 as well, but he continues the conversation into chapter 2 that along with guarding the gospel and living for the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, you must stand ready to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel, to suffer for it. This man, Paul, who is writing this letter from the Mamertine prison on death row in Rome, th this guy just had a PhD in suffering. <laughs> if ever there was a man who knew what suffering was all about, maybe Job could speak with greater force. But after Job would have to be Paul. Following Paul's conversion on the Damascus road, the Lord said concerning to Paul, you may not know the story. If you don't, that's okay. You can find it in Acts 9. But uh, he's encountered the risen Lord on the Damascus road. He is struck blind. And God appears to another one of his, Jesus appears, or in a vision or in some way, to another one of his followers, Ananias and tells him to go to Paul. And he tells Ananias uh, regarding Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Right there at the very beginning, Jesus has set apart Paul 
for a life of profound suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I think one of the reasons why Paul had to suffer to such an extraordinary extent was because, really, to some extent, our faith in the risen Lord rests on the fact that Paul got no material benefit from proclaiming it. If he's going to go around proclaiming the resurrection and he got rich off of it, or he got famous, or he avoided prison or beatings, or he got a girl or anything like that, we might look at it and go, well, yeah, he did it. And so, yeah, he's got to suffer for this thing because our faith in some ways rests on what he witnesses to regarding the resurrection of Jesus. And here's Paul's own synopsis, and this is in 2 Corinthians, by the way, which is not one of his last letters. It's, it's later than, say, 1 Corinthians or Thessalonians, but it's not like 2 Timothy. This isn't him looking back and giving a recap of his whole ministry. This is kind of midstream. He gives this report. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night. And a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." All he had to do was just shut up, <laughs> and it would all go away. This is a man who has suffered much for the sake of the gospel. And so, yeah, when he writes down and he writes, sits down and he writes to Timothy from the Mamertine prison of all places, this carries some emotional force. There's some, he has some street cred, as it were. Even here in his second letter to Timothy, Paul mentions his chains and his sufferings. In chapter 1, he talked about people who he had thought were true friends, had proven to be only fair-weather friends. They turned away from him when he got tossed into prison. And now in chapter 2, he talks about some other former friends who are taking advantage of him, being sidelined. They're going around undermining the gospel with false teachings. It just goes on and on and on. Poor Paul. Suffering is a major theme of Paul's second letter to Timothy. He mentions suffering twice in chapter 1, telling Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel. And then later in that same chapter, he pointed out in verse 12 that it was for the sake of the gospel that he was suffering. And now in chapter 2, suffering is explicitly mentioned twice more in verses 3 and 9. In verse 3, Paul once again calls Timothy to share in suffering. That's his phrase he uses repeatedly. And then just as he did in chapter 1, Paul points out that uh, he's not saying to Timothy anything that he's not willing to undergo himself. Paul points out that the suffering and hardship that he was experiencing was for the sake of the gospel and nothing else. It's true that uh, all of God's children suffer. Only one was perfect, but none avoided suffering. Jesus Himself, of course, set us the example. We say that we are sincere from the heart imitators of a man who went to the cross. Jesus Himself said, take up your cross and follow me. 
We're told in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There is a world of difference uh, between inviting a person to come find life in Jesus so that they'll never have to die and telling them to come and die so that they may know life. The The first statement presents the gospel as a way of avoiding suffering. Come to Jesus, and you won't won't have to die. And that's true enough, I suppose. But it seems to me that when Jesus invited people to follow Him, He said things like, come and take up your cross. Come and die so that you may know life. So the second statement, come and die so that you may know life, presents the gospel not as a way of avoiding suffering, but as a clear statement that all the suffering will be worth it. This matters tremendously because what we win a person with is what we will win them to. If we present the gospel at the outset and from then on as a way of avoiding hardship and suffering, won't we be raising up a generation of fair-weather Christians? What happens when persecution comes? What happens when there's no earthly benefit to being a proclaimer of the gospel or a liver of the gospel? Living, live the gospel. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get through this. What about then? One of the things I think is really hard for me as a a dad is I look at my six children who I love. I'd rather something bad happen to me than to them. I look at them, and the greatest desire I have for my children is that they would grow up to be followers of Jesus. But then I look at the promises of Scripture that say all who follow Jesus will suffer. Have you ever thought that wishing Christ for your child is one and the same as wishing that the world would treat your child the way they treated Christ? What Luke 9.23 tells us, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What that tells us is that Jesus didn't just take our place on the cross. That's true, he did. But he also set an example for us on the cross. And we as disciples should follow his example by a willing embrace of any hardship that comes with being a gospel-believing Christian. That is cheerfully embracing any and all suffering that comes for the sake of the gospel as Jesus did. We have not yet come to the promised and cherished day when there will be no tears, no pain, no mourning, no death, no persecution, no rejection, no hardship. That day is coming. It's been promised. But we're living in the midst of days where suffering remains horrifyingly abundant. And so immediately after calling on Timothy to guard the gospel in chapter 1, he transitions in chapter 2. He is not going to encourage Timothy or anyone or us or the readers of the letter to any kind of cheap consecration, any easy believism. He's going to instantly challenge folks and put on the front of the contract what it's going to cost to be somebody who guards the gospel and lives it out. And so he transitions in chapter 2 to charge Timothy to steal himself to suffer and endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. He says this, 
And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to kind of read the first part. By the way, one of the troubles for me is in doing an entire chapter like this, uh, boy, we could spend months of Sundays on 2 Timothy 2. I'm just going to pull out what I think is kind of the 30,000-foot view, what I think is the biggest thing here, and we're going to move on. But this is what he says in the opening verses of chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, and they also, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory." The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, there's a lot in there, and like I said, we could spend a long time unpacking a lot of these different ideas that Paul lays out, and we're only halfway through the chapter. But what I want to draw our attention to this morning is in quick succession, Paul uses three analogies, three word pictures to encapsulate what it is to live this self-denying, cross-carrying, hardship-embracing kind of Christianity. He calls Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier. And by that, he means that a Christian should live on mission elevating the mission higher than life, higher than the pursuit of wealth, higher than personal comfort or other concerns and considerations. So like a soldier, when you enlist and you join the army and they send you to wherever, you have to, you, you can't continue to work on your house or wherever. You've got to go and do what you've been commanded to do. Second, he likens a disciple of Jesus to an athlete who must compete according to the rules. In other words, in pursuit of that mission, the ends do not justify the means for the church. And then lastly, Paul will liken followers of Jesus to hardworking farmers who put in a lot of long days and for whom the reward comes in time after a season of hard work and delayed gratification. Now, as I was preparing this week, it occurred to me that we have soldiers in our church, and we have athletes, and we have farmers, but I am none of these things personally. (laughs) I suppose neither was Paul. But even so, what do I know of farming or soldiering or life as a competitive athlete. 
I know enough about soldiering to avoid the recruitment office, which isn't nothing, right? Like you can get a sense that, boy, if I sign up, that's going to result in some major life changes. That's going to mean some tough things I'm going to have to enter into, and I'm going to have to surrender personal liberty. I may not know about soldiering, but I know enough to avoid the glance of the recruiter in the mall when I was younger. They don't want me now, I know that. And what do I know of being an athlete? Well, I know enough about athletic training to say cross-country is not for me. And I know enough about farming to give thanks when I eat and feel it. Honestly, I admire soldiers. I'm a fan of various athletes. And I appreciate farmers, but the thought of becoming one of them makes me feel tired. And that's, I think, at least in part, the point of raising these three word pictures. They're meant to confront self-indulgent people, spectator Christianity, Lazy boy Christians. I think there are lots of folks in the church who have settled into a habit of cheering on zealous Christians rather than joining their ranks. What each of these pursuits represent are a wholehearted, disciplined, focused way of going after something. There's hard work, there's discipline, there's strategy, there's singleness of purpose involved when we're talking about a soldier on mission, an athlete pursuing a crown, and a farmer pursuing the harvest. You can't just sort of go at it willy-nilly or it ain't going to happen. Interestingly, Paul seems to circle back to these three word pictures, or at least to the concepts that they represent, throughout the letter from this point on. One really good example is found um, later on, I think it's in chapter 4, I actually didn't put here in my notes the reference, I think it's 4 verses 7 through 8. He says, I fought the good fight, well that's talking about soldiering, I finished the race, it's an athlete. And then he says, I've kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. That's the reward. That's the first share of the crops. That's the payday (laughs) that he's been sacrificing for, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. So I want to spend a little bit of time with these three ideas, soldier, athlete, farmer. Let's start with soldier, of course. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Uh, Years ago, I read the book Doctrine Matters by John Piper. I really enjoy John Piper's books. And in that book, one of the chapters, he he writes about a ship called the Queen Mary. And the ship, the Queen Mary had first launched from a port in England in 1936. It was a luxury cruise liner. 
Uh, really wealthy travelers would travel across the Atlantic on the Queen Mary. And so it was huge. It was luxurious. It was like a floating five-star hotel. It had spacious staterooms, plush furniture, miles of wood paneling, rich carpets. The kitchen was staffed with world-class chefs. The walls had original art pieces. There was a concert hall on board and a full band regularly featuring performances, diversions throughout the cruise, and the first-rate service aboard ship was supported by hundreds of staff toiling away below decks. However, shortly after being launched in 1936, the world changed dramatically. World War II happened, and the Queen Mary changed as well. She was commandeered by the Allied forces and pressed into service. She was overhauled into a troop carrier capable of carrying as many as 15,000 men in a single voyage. The ship's hull, superstructure, and funnels were painted navy gray to help disguise it better out at sea. Features were added to the ship's exterior to help protect it from magnetic mines. Inside the ship, stateroom furniture decorations were removed and were replaced with tiered bunks that maximized the number of troops that could be accommodated. Six miles of carpet, 220 cases of china, crystal and silver service, tapestries, paintings, all were removed and stored until the end of the war. Public spaces were used as chow halls, converted into immense dormitories, and the result was that the Queen Mary became one of the largest and fastest troops, troop ships of the war. Instead of luxury staterooms, servicemen were stacked seven high in their bunks. Instead of 18-piece place settings, there were simple army rations and general-issue fork and knife. In peacetime, Queen Mary had been a luxury liner, but in wartime, she became a troop carrier, and that makes sense. But very often, the way I live simply does not make sense. <laughs> Have I, has my life been overhauled in the same way that the Queen Mary was? The situation was desperate. And so, yeah, things had to change. It had to become aligned like a soldier to the reality that surrounded him. It was on mission. It didn't make sense to have a luxury cruise liner in the middle of World War II. And the question really does press in on my heart. Does it make sense the way I'm living out my days? The situation is desperate. Am I? The way I use my time, the way I spend my money, the amount of time I spend in God's Word, does it reflect the spiritual realities that surround me? Paul says to Timothy, share in suffering like a good soldier. A soldier understands that when I'm on mission, I have to serve the one who enlisted me. I have to subordinate my life to the great cause, to the mission, to taking the hill. And again, the question comes in hard on my own heart, is that what Josh Tate's life looks like? like? What about yours? Now, I pray that God would overhaul our hearts and minds to better fit His wartime purposes for us personally, for our church. 
I pray that we would allocate our time, our prayers, our money, our gifts differently because we've studied His Word together and we've come to see some important realities that God has brought us together in the midst of this place in these days for a mission. And that is true. Many people are drawn to the luxury liner life, but Paul again says to Timothy, like a good soldier, embrace these hardships that come with living life on mission. Reorder your life. Pull out the miles of carpet. Take the furniture out and put the seven-tier bunk bed in. We're going to live life in a way that embraces mission and all the changes that come with it. So that's the first one. And then Paul says, and he's kind of just doing these in machine gun fashion. He's like soldier, athlete, farmer, bam, 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 bam. And so he transitions very quickly to athlete. He says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Like with the soldier, an athlete is one of Paul's favorite go-to illustrations for the Christian life. Uh, Some of you have uh, actually risen quite high in athletic pursuits. Some people in our church have amazing history with athleticism, and, and I think Paul must have been a sports fan on some level. He certainly had an appreciation somehow. At some point, he got an education on what the life of an athlete was like, because he writes about it a surprising amount in his letters. But here, he takes a slightly different tack than those other places where he writes about the athlete. In 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about athletes in connection with the idea of disciplining your body. But here he talks about the importance of competing according to the rules, which is a little bit different than the other times he writes about athletes in his letters. Uh, This idea of an athlete only getting crowned if he competes according to the rules reminds me of a Vance Havner quote. Vance Havner said, a $10 bill got into circulation and it did a lot of good. Uh, He was writing in a time where $10 was worth something, (laughs) if you're confusing, if you're confused on that. A $10 bill got into circulation and did a lot of good. It helped buy coal for the needy helped by medication for a sick child, and showed up in the collection plate at the church one Sunday. Then it fell into the hands of a bank teller who spotted it as a counterfeit. The test is not how many good deeds you claim to your credit, but rather can you pass inspection in the sight of God. There, there, there is a, a truth here, I think, that Paul is communicating to Timothy that the ends do not justify the means in Christian life. I'll give you an example. Uh, Years ago, I've shared with you, I I worked at a Christian campground in Southern California. And on the staff there at that campground, we lived and we worked together. We're uh, right on top of each other all the time. Our personal lives were intermeshed, our work lives, and sometimes that was a a great thing, a source of wonderful blessings. Other times it was tremendously hard. (laughs) You know, just people are difficult. I'm a difficult person. When we live together in such close proximities, inevitably sometimes there will be just seasons where we're chafing. And I remember one, it was one such weekend. I don't know what was going on, but there was a lot of hard feelings on the staff that weekend. And we were kind of enduring one another, being kind of snippy, 
uh, passive-aggressive. It was weird and hostile feeling back in the kitchen especially. The kitchen was like the place where all these things kind of came out. A lot of pressure, deadlines all the time. We've got to get the meal out. And we successfully did it. Guys, we did it. We got all the meals out. The guests were super happy. They thought the food was great. It was on time. It was just exactly what they'd hoped for. But at our weekly staff meeting uh, on Tuesday of that week, uh, Nancy Beggs, a dear saint, a woman, said, we completely failed this past weekend. (laughs) She said, we got the food out on time, and the guests were happy, but was God honored? Did we love one another? Were we forgiving and gracious? Did any of the fruit of the Spirit, was any of that apparent in what we were doing back in the kitchen? The answer was no. Do you think God was impressed we got the food out on time? I don't think so. Because we didn't look a thing like Jesus while we were doing it. So when Paul says here that the athlete is only crowned if he competes according to the rules, there might be a thousand and one ways we could pack this building with people. There might be. But again, have we really succeeded if we did it on some basis other than the gospel? No. I'm reminded, I read a book one time, Pioneer Priests of North America, and there were some early Jesuit missionaries to the Northeast, and the native peoples wanted nothing to do with them, and they were very frustrated because they couldn't get the ear of these people. They wanted to tell them about the Bible and its content, but they didn't want to give them the time of day. But the native people were fascinated with a cuckoo clock. Fascinated, and when the cuckoo clock would come out, they would gather in huge numbers to witness this amazing event. So they decided that they would interpret for the cuckoo clock. When the bird came out and went cuckoo, cuckoo, they would say, okay, now let me tell you what it means. Guys, that's shady. (laughs) They got a huge crowd, and they heard stuff, but it was on the basis of a a lie. And someday that lie is going to come out. They did not compete according to the rules. They were doping. That's what they were doing. And so it's very important that we pay close attention, not only, we shouldn't just be focused on achieving a certain goal, but getting there in a way that honors our God, that represents Him well in the doing of it. I wonder if Paul was alive today, if if he would have made his point by saying that athletes can't use performance-enhancing drugs. They can't put sticky stuff on the baseball, he'd probably talk about. If something fishy comes back in the drug test, they'll take away your medal. You'll be disqualified. And in the Christian life, again, the ends do not justify the means. In fact, the means matter more than the ends. Or maybe I would be, it would be better to say that the means are the end. In the love chapter, for example, Paul says, if you surrender your body to the flames, give all your money to the poor, but you don't have love, you gain nothing. God is not primarily trying to get His people to do stuff. 
He's more about trying to get us to be a certain kind of people, and then all of our doing will flow from who we be, and that's of supreme importance. And again, millions of people admire professional athletes, but very few imitate them or live with the same singleness of purpose. And many Christians want God's blessings on their life without playing by His rules. In verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, whenever the Olympics roll around, I'm always impressed at how much time Olympians devote to perfecting their sport. In order to reach the top, Olympic-class athletes or professional athletes or even very serious amateur athletes must commit themselves wholeheartedly to the discipline of training. There are so many who live their whole lives as Christians being content with the lowest possible training in prayer, Bible study, witnessing, godly living. Christ-like living is the greatest of arts and the highest calling that human, any human being can aspire to. But I think relatively few, I think really seek to master it in the kind of disciplined way that we see an athlete going after it. We're often tempted to settle for something less than the fullness of a life that's fully submitted to Jesus. Then we come to the hardworking farmer. He says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. One of the ways I think that farmers might be differentiated from the first two that have come before, the soldier and the athlete, is it's, it's a, it's a behind-the-scene, thankless kind of a job. When I go to the store and I buy carrots, I, ha- I think very rarely do I think of the carrot farmer. When it, maybe if you were a farmer, you might feel differently when you pull the carrot off. You might have some appreciation for all the steps in the process that got there. I just grab the carrots and I go on to the next thing on the list. Soldiers, we, we think it's a glorious thing. It's a, it's a risky thing. It's a thing where we celebrate them. Thank you for your service, we say in, if we meet somebody who has served. Have you ever said to a farmer, thank you for your service? Probably not as often. An athlete, there's a lot of glory in athletic competition. People are sitting there watching what's going on. Farmers, though, do their work removed, unappreciated, perhaps, unthought about. It's a, and a lot of the Christian life is going to be like that. A lot of it is going to be, and when you pray, when you really pray, this past week, if you prayed for the missions team in Mexico, people weren't like in the gallery watching you praying, <laughs> you know? A lot of the Christian life is like this, and farmers have this kind of a role. But when he invokes the analogy of a farmer, this is spoken into a fundamentally agrarian society. There would have been lots of farmers uh, in, in the people who originally would have heard these words. And a farmer, especially in the first century Roman world, was really not in control. They have to pray for the rain to come at the right time. They are, um, today I think we've done a lot to try and mitigate the natural world in farming, but still, even so, 
there's just a lot where you're just not in control if you're a farmer. There was not much that they could do to guarantee the outcome, but wait and trust. And, and we all want to control the future, but the farmer of Paul's day especially knew they were not in control. God was. So the farmer waits patiently for the promised day, the reward, the harvest. But as any farmer will tell you, as they wait and hope and trust and watch the clouds, while they wait for the crop, they're still busy, they work hard. The waiting is an active waiting. There's work to be done in the church even as we wait for the return of Jesus. The activities of today in the church are forward-looking. There is patience and an end in view as we go about our work in the church, and that's very much like a farmer who's doing all these things for the sake of the eventual harvest. In using the analogy of a farmer, Paul is communicating two things to us about the Christian life. First, he doesn't just point us to farmers generally. He says, he points us to a hard-working farmer. Paul is differentiating between all farmers and hard-working ones. So the Christian life will be marked by work, hard work. Secondly, however, and this is meant to encourage us in the midst of our labors, is the thought of a coming reward. By speaking of the first share of the crops, Paul is talking about a payday. There is a coming day when we'll trade the cross we've been carrying for a crown. Remember that this whole conversation is playing out within the general conversation about suffering for the gospel, being willing to endure hardship for the sake of the mission, and having the end in view, living with an eternal perspective and and the hope of a promised day of reward helps us endure difficult things here and now. John 16.22 says this, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You have sorrow now. Hang in there. Be a farmer who works hard, and there is a coming day where you will have joy and no one can take it from you. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Matthew 5.11-12 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, there, what Jesus is pointing people to is rejoice in the midst of all this hardship, (laughs) this suffering, the hard things that come with guarding the gospel, living the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, because there's a coming day. There is reward in heaven. The author of Hebrews had this type of suffering in mind also when he wrote Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 35, Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. 
You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. And then get this, because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. This is the idea of a hardworking farmer who will share in the, you know, the crops. This is what Paul is pointing us toward, a better and lasting possession. That's the argument. So those are the three ideas. Share in suffering like a soldier. Like an athlete, you'll be crowned if you play according to the rules. Remember, the ends don't justify the means. In the doing of our church life together, we should pursue Christ-likeness. And in the midst of all of those hardships, which inevitably will come, hold on because there is a better and a lasting possession. There is a coming day of reward, like the farmer who, after all that hard work, has brought the crops in and now can enjoy the fruit of his labor. So these days we carry the cross. I can't wait to trade it in for a crown. These days we're on mission. I can't wait for the victory. These days, we are competing, like an athlete, bending everything to submission to the goal of that day when we'll be crowned. And Scripture promises we will. And so, Paul wanted Timothy to know that in the midst of these hardships, keep these things in mind. We're on mission. The way we do the mission matters more even than whatever results we see in our life. And remember that there is a day of reward coming for those who remain faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words that You first gave to Paul by the Holy Spirit in the Mamertine prison as he awaited the day of his martyrdom. And God, perhaps today none of us are in such dramatic circumstances. But probably neither was Timothy when he received this letter. But Paul, as part of his attempt to make firm in Timothy a solid footing for the years to come, passing on the baton of leadership, he wanted to confront perhaps in Timothy or maybe in us, maybe in all those who would read the letter down through the years, any temptation on our part to become spectator Christians, to stand ready to endure whatever comes for the gospel, because we know, God, that we just, if we're with you in suffering, we'll be with you in glory. God, we just want to be with you wherever Jesus is and whatever He's doing. We remember Jesus' words that if they persecuted Him, they will persecute us also. And so, Father, we, uh, we pray that in, by the Holy Spirit, you would give us the ability to stand with you, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, that we would make the great commission the great mission of our lives, that we would be like soldiers who reorder our days and our resources and our time to serve that great cause, that mission. And like an athlete, God, I pray that we would play pay close attention to Jesus and, and to, to who He is, 
that we wouldn't try and arrive at some kind of spiritual end by some other means. Father, we know that with you our motives matter and the way we live together matters, the way we love and serve. All these things matter. And God, in the midst of it all, I pray that we would remember always that our reward is coming, that there is a better and a lasting possession and we will enter into it. So Father, we look to you in trust, ask you for help in living the Christian life in these days while we wait for that great promised day when Jesus returns. In Jesus' name, amen.